Big welcome to the PAW. It's good to have you here. Let's give them a big warm round of applause. If you're giving us one, we can't hear you, but I want to warmly, warmly welcome you to our eighth blueprints. And um, yeah, it's exciting because this is the last time I will officially be speaking to you um, about any particular woman in the Bible. And next time we gather, it'll be Carolyn Custis James. So that is truly, truly exciting. And she will be Skyping us. Um, and the PAW, we're finding a three-way Skype thing. Um, so what I'm probably going to ask her to do is just share what's on her heart for us. And then if that spawns questions, then we'll have some Q&A as well. And uh, just see where the Lord takes us in that. She's, I think she's on Eastern time, so we're going to have to sort of figure that one out. But um, yeah, you know what? If you have friends you want to bring, do it. Because so, I think it's going to be a really rich time. Um, to this point, we've studied the lives of seven women, and we've learned what it means to be a what. And is there, we all, is it, is this anybody's first time here tonight? No? So we all understand the definition of that word, is there? That's awesome. So no remediation here. So tonight we get to look at our final woman, um, for the Blueprint series called Mary Magdalene. And we'd like to start tonight by asking Cassidy Ann to come and do a spoken word for us. So she's going to kick off the evening. So before I begin, the spoken word is a little bit different than the others. I took some creative liberties, um, imagining with Holy Spirit, um, thinking of what Mary Magdalene's life would have been like um, in regards to how she would have lived before she met Jesus. In the shadows, I used to sleep, running down back alleyways, selling my body for bread, giving myself to a new man every night just for a place to lay my head. Again and again, I invited the darkness in. No family to go home to, for the demons had made their home in me. Lust, rage, and jealousy, and rotting death were the men that ruled me. Never once a glance of pity. Never once a touch gently. You are the dirt, they would say. The scum of the earth not worth the time of day. So I believed them. Grew my hair long to hide my face. Draped my arms with fake gold and ran away from civilization into the bitter cold. My soul is as old as the sun itself. I've been here so long, there's no use in crying out for help. Help. Then help came. Abounding over the hills, coming up around the grassy cliffs into my hometown. Into my town where sin abounds. He began to walk. Dusty sandals through the streets. I was afraid that he could hear my heartbeat. Pounding with torturous shame until he called my name. Mary. Mary, come to me. His voice soothed my wounds and fell over my body like thick, sweet honey. His eyes were so, so lovely. How can compassion and fire coexist? Well, they did. Beautifully. Beautifully. 
And he just kept drawing me closer and closer through the crowds, the shops, and the people. He kept drawing me near, and I couldn't say no. No, he spoke. No, no more of this. No wrestling in the dark. No screaming at all hours of the night, ripping your heart apart. No more shame and the calling of names. No, my dear woman, you are not the one to blame. Peace to your soul and your body and mind. I cast out everything that makes your heart feel unsafe. You are not a waste of space, dear woman. Be clean and be whole again. And for the first time, I was quiet inside. He made my demons subside. He is the Christ, the rightful Lord of my life, and he saved my soul. He's the best man I know. But they treated him like a murderer and a slave. I watched him walk to his grave. Why is he bloody? Why is he heaving for his breath? As the sweat and tears dripped down his face, I screamed in protest. The one that calmed my raging seas was being stabbed with a spear in front of me. No, I cannot fathom how this was meant to be. They sit gambling below him, laughing, but he was my everything. They placed him on a cross, then put him in a rock, and I would have gladly died in his place. I would give anything to see his face. I walked to the tomb and found it open. The seal was broken, and in panic, I sank to the ground. My Jesus could not be found. They already killed him. Did they have to take his body as well? I ran to find someone to tell, but instead I found a gardener with eyes of compassion, yet not of the human fashion. With a shaking heart and tears resting behind my eyes, I asked him where they took the body. But he asked me why I was crying. It felt like I was dying inside. So I told him, if they took my Jesus, he should tell me now. But instead, he smiled and with a lift of his brow said, Mary. And all at once, all over again, his words soothed my wounds and fell over me like honey. I know that voice anywhere. I know that voice saying my name anywhere. My Jesus is alive. The one who killed my demons and gave my torturous soul a place to abide. I wrapped my shaking arms around him, but he told me not to cling to his side, yet to tell the world that his love was on the rise. What does this mean for the world that death has been defeated, that the grave has been beaten? It means that fear has now depleted, that all my cravings for a kind, just king have been satisfied. With tears dancing down my eyes, my Jesus never being more alive, the world should be on cloud nine, because our Savior, he's alive. Death could not hold him, and pain could never crush him, and fear could never rule him. He is Jesus Christ, and with his death, he saved my life. That was beautiful. Thank you so much, Cassidy Ann. 
Let me encourage us all to use our imaginations. I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about that this morning too, but I love, I love what Cassidy Ann does to, with her imagination to bring the scriptures to life. Your imagination is sanctified like all of you is. And when you, when you go there, you really do mine the word in a different way than you would if you just read black letters on a page because the word of God is living and active and is sharper than any two-edged sword and it comes to life. Use every part of you when you're reading your Bible. The transformational work of God in Mary Magdalene is incredibly beautiful and inspirational. And what I love about all the women that we've studied over these many months together is that they were women who had issues. They were broken, they were imperfect, they had lots of flaws, but they played such a key role in advancing the kingdom of God, and they deserve such a good look at. And I hope that over these months, you have discovered that in some of these imperfect women that we've studied. And um, what we do with Mary, at least what I did, is we tend to lump her in with the Marys. You know all that about the Mary and the Mary and the other Mary and then the other Mary. And you're like, which Mary was that? And does anybody really know which Mary was that? Right? She fits in that category. And so that's kind of where she was lumped. But, you know, reading this chapter and seeking God and his word about Mary was, was really helpful for me. Like Mary of Nazareth, she has a lot of myth and misunderstanding surrounding her that's been generated. And so the first thing we're going to do is peel a couple of those things away and get to the facts. Um, Carolyn James writes this quote. She said, Jesus prized her as a follower, enlisting her as a kingdom builder. She became one of his heirs. To the flesh and blood, Jesus, walking on the earth, Mary Magdalene became an Azar to him. What a privilege. Here's who she was not. We know that she wasn't, the Bible never actually says that she was the woman that was caught in adultery that was about to be stoned. People have associated with her with that. That's never said. She um, we don't know whether she was a prostitute. She may well have been, as Cassidy Ann imaginatively portrayed for us, which I thought was excellent. We don't know. We have no idea. She wasn't Mary of Bethany. She was not the one who anointed Jesus' feet with expensive oil and wept over him. She was not Jesus' wife, as the Da Vinci Code suggests. And she was not the designated leader of the church in place of Peter, as others would have it. Despite all the myths surrounding her, we do know that she was one of the most significant women in the New Testament. The only woman mentioned more times than her was the mother of Jesus, Mary of Nazareth. Carolyn James says, Mary Magdalene enjoyed the enviable privilege of a face-to-face -face relationship with Jesus all four gospel writers identify her as one of Jesus' most devout followers, a leader and a crucial eyewitness of the most dramatic accounts of the life of Christ. She appears in nine different lists of women, and in all but one of them, her name heads the list, indicating that her prominence, she was prominent among the women. And among the followers of Jesus, Mary Magdalene's name occurs more often in the Bible than most of the 12 apostles. That's not an accident. 
this woman mattered. She mattered to the Lord and she should matter to us. What we do know about her was, as Cassidy Ann so wonderfully portrayed, was that she was a woman that was tormented by demons. She lived in a virtual stronghold of the devil. She was in the grip of the enemy. The symptoms and manifestations of demonic possession, as we know it from the word of God, in the New Testament, they were varied. The demoniacs were sometimes insane, as in the case of Legion, who used to run around in a graveyard and behave so fiercely and violently that no one dared approach him. And I wonder, was Mary like that? It doesn't actually say. But I remember when I was a young girl, I saw this movie about the life story of Tchaikovsky and his, his wife went completely insane and was completely demonized. And, and how they portrayed her in the story was she had this wild hair that was just full of things. And, and she was half clad and just filthy and dirty. And she was constantly mumbling to herself and scratching herself and hitting herself. And, and I think about that in the male version with Legion. And I wonder, I don't know, was Mary like that? Sometimes demonic possessions in the Bible manifested as physical infirmities like blindness, deafness, muteness, seizures, and general infirmity. And I wonder, was Mary chronically ill? Was she all bent over? Was she bent out of shape? Was she harassed by voices in her head? Did she manifest multiple personalities and manipulate people in circumstances everywhere she went? Was she deaf? Was she blind? Did she fall down and have seizures? Did she cower and hide from people talking to herself in her own private hell? Or did she rant in the streets and make a public nuisance of herself? Did she have a historical equivalent of a Walmart shopping cart and hoard her possessions gathering and amassing things while skirting the rim of society? We don't know. Whatever the manifestations, we do know that Mary Magdalene's life was a tortured one. And it showed. You can't have a legion of demons in you and it not be evident. Who can imagine the circumstances and the story that led her to that place? Have you ever wondered, when you think about legion, I've sometimes just sat and pondered, what went so wrong in that Gadarene man's life that he was flooded with a legion of demons. What? He was, he was a beautiful little pink baby once, sitting on his mother's knee. From there to wandering the graveyards, beating himself up, cutting himself if you ever wonder about cutting, it's in the Bible. It's just read that chapter. The Gadarene demoniac. What happened? What happened to Mary Magdalene that got her so demonized? The people's stories in the Bible recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit will only lack color and texture to us because we don't think deeply about them. We just read it and move on. And we don't ponder their lives and their circumstances. And let me say this one more time. This is why your imagination matters. It's not like you're making up stuff and it's gospel truth and you're going to tell everybody what Mary's life was like. But you need to consider it. And you need to consider the fact that there were circumstances that led her up to that point. Strongholds take years to build. 
Sometimes they're precipitated by trauma, pain, abuse, repeated sin. They're fueled by our responses to those things with years of engaging in activities, thought life, bitterness, anger, rage, lies, practices, and habits that invite demonic habitation. Demons don't just come up and take random residence. They just don't do that. They need a suitable level of brokenness and engagement with them to stake out their turf. They need a comfortable place to live. You know how we sometimes pray, Holy Spirit, come abide with me. I, I want to make my life a comfortable place for you to dwell. It's the same with demons. They're not going to hang around a holy temple of God. Are you kidding? They run screaming into the night. For somebody to be in the grip of the enemy... That person has had to give over to that place to create landing strips, to create platforms for them to dwell. They're built over time, and no one knows what led Mary to such a demonic infestation, but it had to be bad. The Bible says that she was possessed by seven demons. Now, it's interesting because it's possible that there were actually seven but in case you didn't know this, in, he, in the Hebrew culture, seven is the number of fullness or completion. So often when the gospel writers would use numbers, it actually meant something else. It wasn't literally seven. It was Mary had a full house of demons. Mary had the complete number. She was chock full of demons. And so Luke could well have been indicating that Beyond having seven demons, her life was actually completely infiltrated and dominated by evil spirits. This woman was full of physical, emotional, and mental anguish. Basically, she existed in her own living hell on earth. Likely, she would have been estranged and hopeless as a woman under demonic control. She would have been cut off from the temple and perhaps, like Legion, cut off from society. And as well as hopeless, she would have been helpless. We gloss over these things so quickly. And we dismiss the ravages of her former life. And if we do that, we dilute and minimize the grandeur and glory of her rescue. Because it was pretty phenomenal. And then we fail to recognize why this woman was so completely devoted. You have to think about the journey to understand where she had arrived at, at this point of redemption in her life. Somewhere, somehow, sometime amidst all those miracles that Jesus performed that were so many that the Bible says it can't even contain them because it doesn't mention that moment when he set her free. Jesus noticed her. He saw her. How many women have we talked about in the last few months that the Lord saw? He's the God who sees. And he saw her. And he saw his creation so crippled and so harassed and so lost and so helpless and so needy. And he did what he saw his father doing. He reached into her darkness and he addressed that demonic mass tormenting her. She didn't deserve it. She didn't do a thing to deserve it. And she likely didn't even seek it out because most of the people in the Bible who were demonized didn't seek Jesus out. They'd shout, get away from me, get away from me, get away from me. 
And in one magnificent moment of grace, whether by a word or a touch, this woman was set free from her torment. And for perhaps the first time in her life, she experienced absolute peace. A sudden end to the chaos, the voices, the demonic static interference in her head, the physical or emotional anguish, the lie, and the lies she'd lived under. Her soul took its first breath. Her spirit came alive. Her body stood straight. Maybe her ears were unstopped. Maybe she could speak. Maybe she could see clearly for the first time in her life. Maybe finally there wasn't depression and confusion tormenting her mind. The power of God had now filled her, defeating all other powers. Can you imagine? The profound rejection she'd experienced in her life was swept away by grace and unconditional acceptance. And she knew one thing. Jesus had absolute power to save. He had absolute authority over the enemy. He had absolute love. And in return, her devotion was absolute. And I find the accounts of her subsequent activities so moving. This was a woman who clearly didn't want to be anywhere where he wasn't. And from that time on, she made Jesus Christ the sole object of her love and devotion, and she oriented her entire life around him. She became one of his followers. It's interesting to note that unlike other demoniacs who Jesus sent away to go and spread the message, he allowed her to stay amongst his intimate followers. The once ostracized and isolated woman joined the precious and privileged fellowship of his followers. And as you know, often we have a testimony of somebody, and I asked Krista Gerbrandt tonight if she would share her story. She's got a a wonderful story to share with you just of what God did in terms of her own deliverance and salvation. So Krista. Hello. I was born into a family that in itself was lost. Divorce, substance abuse, mental illness, and sheer hopelessness was all my family knew going back generations on both sides. Uh, As far as I know, no one in my family knew Jesus. We had the odd Anglican and Catholic in my family. My family's from Europe, so that happens. But uh, they didn't know Jesus. Uh, Religion in my family was just that. It was much more about following rules than following Christ. I had grown up never going to church, never having a desire to get to know him or learn about him. Yet despite that, he found me the lost girl from the lost family. Like Mary Magdalene, I wasn't seeking Jesus. Excuse me. My story isn't about the lost lamb who found the shepherd, but of the shepherd who searched and rescued his lost lamb despite her determination to avoid him. Jesus' strong arm reached into the black darkness that engulfed me and pulled me out to safety anyway. My parents married in May 1987, six weeks before I was born. 17 months later, my brother came along. It was not a happy marriage, to say the least. 
my dad was very emotionally and physically abusive. The first memory I have, actually, of my father is of him arguing with my mom and pushing her across the kitchen into the stove. I was four. That same year, my parents divorced. My mom received full custody of my brother and I, and my dad moved to Toronto. Over the next several years, my dad would move back and forth from Toronto to Winnipeg. The reasons varied from he couldn't find work, or he was running from the law, or he didn't have a place to live. Over these years, he also developed drug and gambling addictions. And I always felt like he chose those things over me. The last time he moved back to Toronto in 2003 was the last time, and he's been there ever since. I haven't physically seen my father in 15 years. Around the same time my parents divorced, I was sexually abused by a neighbor. At almost five years old, I became acutely aware of my sexuality, how it was something that boys and men wanted, and how I could use it to my advantage. So, with no dad around, and all the newfound male attention, I was doomed. These two experiences shaped the way I viewed men, relationships, and sex for years to come. As you can imagine, I had to grow up really fast. Uh, My mom was a working single mom, and my brother, who is on the autism spectrum, needed her more than I did. So all her free time was spent with his doctors, teachers, and counselors. In her attempts to deal with her stress, she too developed a drug and gambling dependency. I was left with babysitters a lot, and I was very lonely. But I was fine. I heard that a lot growing up. Krista's fine. She'll be fine. I did well in school and seemed relatively well-adjusted, considering all that was going on. But on the inside, I was dying for attention, for a positive role model in my life, male or female. But there was no one around. I was lost. Thanksgiving morning, 2003, I woke up to the sound of what I thought was my mom snoring. I would later learn that it was the sound of her choking, as the night before she had taken painkillers in an attempt to end her life. Her plan didn't work. She survived. I was obviously very thankful she did. But then all these thoughts started to run through my mind. She doesn't love me. She wants to leave me like my dad did. She knew I'd be the one to find her in the morning. Why would she do that? She's so selfish. My abandonment issues went full bore, and I said enough is enough. If no one cares, I don't care. I'm going to quit being the good one, and I'm going to do what I want. Everyone else does. Thus began my stage of partying, staying out all night, drinking, and sleeping around, kidding myself into thinking that I was having fun. That this somehow was empowering, when in reality I was broken, and I was looking for anything to fill the void that I would soon realize could only be filled by the love of my Heavenly Father. If I was lost before, I was beyond now. It was during this period of rebellion where I met Greg. He was new to Winnipeg from BC, and we were both looking for love in all the wrong places. We dated, if you could call it that, for about six weeks before we grew to resent each other. 
he wanted something more serious. And as someone who would typically only date someone for a week or two and then send him packing, they couldn't hurt me that way. I thought he was annoyingly clingy. So we broke up, both of us very happy to never see each other again. Three weeks later, I found out I was pregnant. Now, the story of how my daughter was born and how Greg and I got back together is a story in and of itself. So for time's sake, this is the abridged version. Greg and I remained apart until Ella was born. It was during this time, unbeknownst to me, that he gave his life to Jesus. He was going to church, doing Bible study every day, and doing inner-city missions work. So when we did get back together after our daughter was born, I noticed a huge change. The Greg I knew did drugs and partied. He didn't hand out sandwiches to the homeless. He was different. He started to talk to me about Jesus, and I didn't want any part of it. I even remember thinking that this could be something that he and Ella did as something separate from myself. They could do church, and I could stay home. I was, uh, this was great for Greg, but something that I didn't want any part in. So as someone with full-blown daddy issues, the concept of a loving father was one that not only I didn't understand, I didn't believe existed. Until Easter 2007. We found a flyer under our door advertising an Easter pancake breakfast at the church across the street. So with the promise of free pancakes, Greg got me to church for the first time. We crossed the street to Darwin Elementary, the school that a church called Gateway rented out to hold their Sunday service. At the end of the service, when Pastor Aaron gave the altar call and asked who wanted to know Jesus, my hand shot up. It was a move of the spirit before I even knew what that was. I had no interest in knowing God. I went for the pancakes. <laughs> like Mary, I wasn't chasing him, but he found me in that gym. I'd love to be able to tell you that my life was instantly transformed from that moment on and everything was great, but it wasn't. Around the same time, I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. It was crippling. It was like all the years of abuse, neglect, and trauma caught up with me. Most days, I couldn't even get out of bed. I was a 20-year-old child trying to raise a baby with a man I hardly knew. To say I felt lost was an understatement. I was still lost, even though Jesus had found me, and that confused me even more. A year into my and Greg's second attempt at a relationship, we got married. By all accounts, we had no business getting married at all. We weren't even in love with each other. I had no idea what real love looked like. But as new Christians, we knew that if we wanted God to bless our family and receive the fullness of his promises for us, we needed to honor him. And that meant getting married. Looking back, I recognize how much maturity and trust that took. Another move of the spirit, for sure. The first five years of our marriage were hell. Trying to get to know each other while simultaneously raising a child together. Battling our own demons and trying to get to know God was very hard. It was really, really hard. I wanted to cut and run so many times. It's what's been modeled for me. I told myself it was my fault that I was crazy and broken and ruining Greg's life. He was better off without me. 
one pivotal moment for me during yet another argument with my husband in which I was telling him how much I was no good, how I hated him, I hated myself, and I wanted him to leave. He literally grabbed my face, looked me in the eye and said, I am never going to leave you. He could see right through me, trying my hardest to push him away rather than try to make this relationship work. I didn't know how to make any relationship work. He had said things like this to me before, but this time I believed it. Greg was not going to leave me because I was broken, and neither was Jesus. And I think that was the first time since Jesus found me in that gym that I truly believed that. For the first time, Jesus wasn't pulling me out of my darkness. He wasn't pulling me at all. I gave him my hand, and we walked together. I began to change my thinking. I actually began to engage my faith. I read the Bible. I watched sermons online. I was chasing Jesus back, possibly because now I finally felt worthy of doing so. In chasing him, the lies that I had believed about myself for so long slowly started to fade away. C.S. Lewis wrote, look for Christ and you will find him, and with him, everything else. And that's exactly what began to happen. My relationship with Greg began to grow and mature. I started to volunteer in kids' ministry. I joined the worship team. Greg and I started to lead a cell group. It was great. I went from not being able to get out of bed to not being able to sleep because I was so excited to get up on a Sunday morning and serve. Finally, one day, I was talking to my friend about a family member of hers uh, struggling with mental illness. Borderline was her diagnosis, just like mine. So I took out my phone, looked up the symptoms of BPD, shared them with her, and we continued our conversation. It wasn't until later that evening that I realized I had to Google the symptoms of borderline personality disorder. This mental illness that had crippled me for so long, I had to Google the symptoms because I couldn't remember what they were. God had done the impossible without me even realizing it. My life is still far from perfect, but God has done amazing things in my life. My husband and I are a few months away from our 10th wedding anniversary. Uh, We've had another child since Ella. And I love Greg in a way that even five years ago, I never would have been able to say is possible. God's delivered my family from depression, addiction, and total destruction, really. My relationship with Jesus has grown into something I wouldn't trade for anything. He's shown me that a father can be trustworthy, faithful, and loving. That he is gentle and kind and merciful. And above all, that because of what he did for me on the cross, I am worthy of all of those things. He brought me from a life of wandering aimlessly through the tombs to walking purposely with him. I was so, so lost. But Jesus found me and pursued me until I was strong enough to believe I was worth being pursued in the first place. And when that finally happened, I reached out my hand, met his, and we've been walking together ever since. Isn't it wonderful to hear what God does, even when we're not looking for him? I wasn't looking for him either. And he did the same thing for me. Took me out of serious demonic stuff. He's so good. Like Krista, 
Mary Magdalene had a radical rescue. And she became a radical follower, a radical Azer. And I just want to touch on three points of what, of what that looked like for her. Number one was she became a disciple. Not having the status of being one of the 12, we tend to dismiss women as disciples, don't we? Do you ever call women the disciples? Right? What's up with that? That's wrong thinking. That's just erroneous. Women were among the disciples. Now, they weren't counted amongst the twelve, but they were disciples of Jesus. She was amongst that close circle of disciples. And what did that involve? Well, she learned. She was taught. She imbibed everything that Jesus said. She listened. She heeded. Ladies, actually, this is an astounding thing. Because this would have been absolutely unheard of in that culture. Under no circumstances was it proper or normal for women to follow rabbis around. That didn't happen. That was a no-no culturally. And they didn't form part of a nucleus that was co-ed around the rabbi. Traveling around with a religious leader strongly convicted with traditional female roles in Jewish society, and yet here you have a whole new practice, a whole new perspective for three whole years while Jesus began and carried out his ministry. This flew in the face of convention, but Jesus was counterculture. Isn't it funny how we just create these conventions and say that's the kingdom of God, and then you really take a good look at it. You go, oh, (laughs) Jesus was counterculture. Even the culture that sometimes the Christian church sets. He was all about leveling barriers that had existed between people and between people and God. Carolyn James says, Rabbi Jesus radically broke with tradition. He didn't isolate himself from women like other rabbis. He taught them openly. He engaged their minds. He recruited them as his disciples and counted on them in weighty matters. We'll get to that in a minute. The women got the same deep theology as the men. Traditionally, the men got to listen to the rabbis, right? And then there was this outer court place where the women got to sit. That was the model in that culture. Well, that's not the model that Jesus perpetuated as he taught people. They got to sit at his feet, whether they were men or women. And we all know about Mary of Bethany choosing that place. There's biblical precedent for that. It's very explicit in the text. But that is our portion now. That is our portion We have direct access to him right now, right here at all times, and we're welcomed as his friends. There's no barrier. Jesus was about restoring people to their proper God-given place. They needed prolonged, sustained exposure to Jesus, and so do we. 
His followers had multiple perspectives. They were men and women from all different walks of life and social classes. Jesus was forging them into a family, a body, a community, a church whose trademark was to be their love for one another. Not contempt. Not this great divide, not this wall of hostility that's them and us. That thing that we have created in this culture. And I love it that Jesus received and welcomed these women who walked with him. Secondly, Mary Magdalene provided financial support for Jesus' ministry. I'm going to say that again. Mary Magdalene provided financially for Jesus' ministry and his other followers. This is even more astounding. She was among a select group of women who contributed financially to all the needs of the group. They had to have been women of substance, women of means, but the reality is that their following of Jesus translated into every area of their lives, their time and their money. And here's where Mary, who got delivered of all those demons, who became a follower of Jesus Christ, here's where she became an Azar. She became a key contributor to the advancement of his kingdom, which we can be grateful for as recipients of the gospel. Do you realize that Mary and some of these other women made what Jesus did possible? Well, just think about that for a minute. Well, couldn't he have done it on his own? Like, wasn't he the son of God and he could, you know, get coins out of fish's mouths and, you know, do miracles with loaves? Actually, there were some women who made what Jesus did practically possible. I really like that. Can you tell? They were not incidental to the group. They were critical to the group. They enabled Jesus' mandate, which was to bring the kingdom of God and then die on a cross. These faithful women enabled the ministry of Jesus Christ himself. That is just mind-boggling to me. By supporting the mission and fueling it to go forward. You know, we as churches and, you know, groups, we, we fuel missions, right? I'm sure everybody has missionaries that they support. How many have missionaries that you support? Right? Yeah, we all have missionaries we support. Well, there were people that supported Jesus. Jesus Christ, Son of God, <laughs> had missionary supporters. It's incredible. And they were women. His mission required some financial support. They had to eat. They had to travel. They had to find lodging. Their sandals wore out. Their clothing. Think about it. Use your imagination. Their clothing needed laundering. Their neat clothing needed repair. Maybe even replacing. They needed to eat every day. For three years, they needed to eat. 
And it doesn't say in my Bible that every single day that they, Jesus did miracles to create food out of nothing so that he and his disciples could eat. Those were specific times that we read about that he did that. But every day, these people needed to eat. And every day, these women provided out of their means. It's pretty amazing. There was a whole lot of supernatural going on, and there was a whole lot of natural going on. Somebody fed him. Somebody washed his clothes. How beautiful is that? Hello, we can all be his Azers even now. God has many ways for us to fulfill this mandate even now. Mary's wealth and her generosity and the choice to invest in the kingdom of God helped propel Jesus' mission forward on the earth in a very practical way. Nowhere, actually, do you hear about men doing this. That's not to say that there weren't men who did that. I suspect that there were. Let's just say that there was. However, my Bible doesn't say that. (laughs) I'm sure it happened. But it's interesting that the Bible chose to say that there were some faithful women who helped support Jesus out of their own means. I think that's really lovely. And you know what I think is even really more precious is that Jesus received and welcomed the ministry of these women, and he allowed them to financially provide for him. You don't ever hear him saying, hey, guys, step up your game. Get it together. We're being supported by a bunch of women. It doesn't ever say that. Jesus welcomed these women and welcomed who they were and how they were wired and how they wanted to serve him and give to him. And Azare come and lift and lift and lift, advance and advance further and promote this king of kings. How awesome. And thirdly, she was utterly devoted. Nearly everywhere you see Jesus in the gospel, you find Mary Magdalene was there. She followed him as he ministered, taught, and healed. She followed him to Calvary. She remained through the grueling ordeal of violence as her Lord was nailed to the cross. She remained there when many of Jesus' other disciples fled. Most of them had left in the night before he was crucified. When others ran, she stayed. She watched and wept as he died. She followed his body to the tomb and remained there with the other Mary, with one of the other Marys. And we read that Joseph of Arimathea asked for the body and was laying him in the tomb and that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were right there. There's no other disciples there. None of the 12. None of the, none of the big guys, the kahunas, the, the chief disciples, not one of them was there. Joseph Arimathea is laying Jesus' body in the tomb. And who's there? Mary Magdalene. Because this woman did not want to be anywhere where her Lord wasn't. Because like Cassidy said, he was her everything. She could not tear herself away emotionally, physically, spiritually. And if she had to stand there opposite the tomb and just be near his dead body... That's where she wanted to be. He had become her everything. 
What a moving scene. Those two women sitting there watching Joseph lay the body in the tomb. This woman who had been rescued, now not able to ever pull herself away, sitting there watching. She displayed extraordinary courage, not caring that she was expressing visible and defiant loyalty and devotion to this rebel insurrectionist, Jesus Christ, who claimed to be the king of kings. She didn't care. The other disciples feared for their lives, but not Mary. No, she associated with him in life, and she associated with him in death, right to the end. This Azar never left his side. She was among the first to return to the tomb after the Sabbath. She went home to observe the Sabbath. While it was still dark, she came in. Why to be an Azer, having carefully prepared spices, always caring, always ministering? She was among the first to discover that the tomb was empty. She's the only one mentioned in all four Gospels as being there to hear the angel's report, he is risen, he's not here. And then... She's there for that moment that Carolyn James describes as the big moment in the Bible, the central event of Christianity, the encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And to me, this is the most extraordinary thing and deeply moving that Jesus chose to appear first to Mary Magdalene. When you read it in the scripture, she finds that there's no body, and, and she gets told by this angel that he's not here, he's risen. She runs where? She runs back to Peter and John to tell them what's happened, and Peter and John run to the tomb and check. Now, don't you kind of think that that would have been a great moment for Jesus to appear and say, yes, here I am, don't touch me, I haven't ascended, and onward. He could have appeared when Peter and John came to the tomb, but he didn't. So Peter and John leave. And Mary's still there. And who appears? Jesus. He chose Mary as the first person to appear to. The woman who had once completely comprehended the power of what it was to be under Satan's authority, he now showed her that he had fully vanquished that enemy. And then Jesus authorizes her and commissions her to proclaim the good news of his resurrection to his brothers and the 11 apostles. Go and tell my brothers. He not only appears to her, he commissions her. She hasn't just witnessed an empty tomb. She's seen Jesus, and she's told to testify of her encounter, and she's given the message to say to them. And Carolyn James makes the point that it's been noted by many distinguished theologians that Mary was at that moment an apostle to the apostles. The meaning of the word apostle is sent one, and she got sent. And where did she get sent? She got sent to the to the 11, the remaining 11. And she became at that moment an apostle to the apostles. It was pure and simple. And she sent with that message and she goes, the cultural context was that a woman's testimony in court was always dismissed. They, they held no validity. Can you imagine? 
women weren't allowed to testify in court because they were women. And it held, it held no ground. But here we see Jesus entrusting the message of his resurrection to a woman. And establishing in that very moment the credibility of the testimony of a woman. Which is a pretty amazing thing. And in so doing, he established them and they could be his messengers. And the gospel writers all write about it. They all write about Mary Magdalene in the account of the resurrection. They could have hidden the fact, but they didn't because it was the truth. And so she gets that credibility that women were just not given. Mary was there with Jesus through three years of his ministry, but most importantly, she was there for the two defining moments of his ministry, the two most critical events of his life, his crucifixion and his resurrection. She observed it, she witnessed it, and she proclaimed and testified of it. And her witness and her testimony were verified and upheld. Carolyn James makes this point. Jesus' first act after his resurrection was to mobilize the women and send them to their brothers. The blessed alliance of these men and women was intact and vital to the success of the spread of the gospel. God's method of operation hasn't changed from creation to the present. He calls men and women to join forces in serving him together. This is God's heart and blueprint for every single one of us. We're all flawed. We're all imperfect. But God wants to heal our brokenness. Like Mary Magdalene, he sees us. He wants to free us from all of those things that harass, torment, or press. We may not have that number seven fullness of demonization that, God forbid, that Mary Magdalene had. But we all carry things from our past. We all carry stuff that God wants to free us from. He wants to establish his authority in our lives because he has authority over the enemy. He wants to invite us to live in intimate relationship with him and find wholeness, understanding, insight, teaching, to learn and understand and comprehend the mysteries of God and his kingdom, his love and his acceptance, to not only become his followers, but to become his disciples and to become his friends. He wants to establish us as Azares in areas that he's equipped us to function in as ministers. For Mary, it was discipleship and financial support to advance the kingdom. Her ministry enabled the work of Jesus for that three-year period and beyond. These women were no wallflowers. You know, it's interesting. I, um, For some of you who may not know, I started a business recently. A couple of years ago, um, I make hummus. Yeah, it's good hummus. So, you know, I have worked in the church for 38 years. I really have. And it's been so enlightening to be um, in an entirely new arena. And finding myself, I mean, I was at an orientation for vendors for this really big Christmas market that I have to go to soon. And the majority were women. 
the majority of the vendors were women, and I mean fine women, mighty fine women, extraordinary women, Azer types, you know, clear-headed and visionary and resilient and hardworking and making stuff happen. And I'm like, yeah, this is really cool. And, and I realize, you know, just seeing the beauty in this context, this whole different context, not that I haven't seen this in the church, but in this particular context, I, I've been so inspired to see what it is that God has put within women, especially in the area of creativity, of generating resources, of advancing things. And that's what these women did. He wants to invest in us his value and perspective of who we are and what his purposes are for us and what a vital part we play as those who encounter the risen Lord on a day-to-day basis, whose testimony of what he did in our lives is so imperative to a lost world. God chooses women very, very, very deliberately. As his Azares for for very important things and world-changing moments. And we can be encouraged that that's what he wants to do. We're going to end soon, but I just want to say, I hope that we're going to go into our um, snack fellowship and small group time. I hope that the lives of these women that we've studied has made a difference to you. I truly hope that you got to know these women in a way that you never knew them before, and it has changed you. If it hasn't, can I encourage you to really meditate on it again? Because I think, I really do believe that going forward. I mean, blueprints is coming to an end, right? But what's about to begin in us? What are the things in us that are maybe just fledgling, Maybe just formative. Maybe just a tiny hope. Maybe a little weeny dream. Uh, Like I said, I have recently stepped into the shoes of an entrepreneur. It's really scary stuff. Most days, I'm like, have I got all my ducks in a row? Have I got all my ducks in a row? Where are my ducks? They're flying (laughs) like mad. I can't get my head around it most days. But I know one thing. I am being firmly taken by the hand into a supernatural realm that we call marketplace ministry. And Jesus calls it my kingdom because I have something for you here. And I need you to walk in it because there's something here. It may be very practical. It may be very what you think is not supernatural. It's all supernatural. It's all his kingdom. Who are you? And what's he put in you? And what has he put in you for what reason? We read in the Bible about being apprehended for all that which he's apprehended me. What are those things? What are those things? And how does he want to use them for you to step up to be the Azer to Jesus, just like Mary Magdalene was? I hope to be able to 
generate, 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 and fuel the mission and advance the kingdom financially. I want to be a Mary Magdalene. And it looks like this. One foot ahead of the other. Taking very, 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 very seriously Matthew 25 that he has invested in you. Talents, gifts, strengths. And what will you do? That's the Azar part. Then there's the devotional part. What will you do with that? Are you going to be like Mary Magdalene and these other women who encountered him who said, you're everything to me. I want to know you. And that looks like this. Every day, every moment, Lord Jesus, I want more of you. I want more of you. I know I'm in you. I'm in you. What does that look like? What does that mean? I want to encounter you. I want to live with you. I want to know heaven here on earth. Here's what I practice. Dual citizenship. Especially when I drive my car. It's easier when I drive my car. I don't know why. But I'm driving in heaven. I know that sounds really strange to some of you. But I am not just flesh and blood. I have been created for so much more. And I am a new creation who lives in another realm that's not just planet Earth. So when I drive my car, I just become very aware of my surroundings. And it ain't Lajemodier. Do that in your devotional life. Do that in your car. Do it anywhere when you're baking your cakes. Doing your art. Spoken word. Your jobs. Encounter devotion, the reality of intimacy with him because he welcomes you and he loves his daughters. There's no ceiling, there's no boundary, there's no wall, there's no barrier for us. And out of that comes the advancement of the kingdom because you, you're near him, you hear him, you listen, you obey, and you get to help Jesus. And he says, I really like that, that all these women are helping. (laughs) Because that's what he so evidently displayed with these dear women. We're going to end. I just want to say one thing. I know you're gesturing at me. One thing that I just find so precious is that when Jesus came to Mary, she fell at his feet because she was like, can you imagine? Can you imagine when she realized who he was? She falls at his feet. She grabs onto him. She clings to him. He says, don't, don't touch me yet. I've not yet ascended. But he gives them the, her the message. Go tell the brothers that, that I go to, to my father. And then he says this one little phrase. And your father. My God and your God.
this was new. He'd only ever talked about my father and the father, but now it's your father. And I want to just stress that tonight because I felt like the Holy Spirit really highlighted that for me, that um, I know Krista touched that on that in her testimony about the father, that there might be some of you here that just feel like that is such a distant reality for you. But this was Jesus talking to Mary who had formally understood what it was to live under the fatherhood of the father of lies. And now he's looking into her eyes in his, in his resurrection moment. He says, I'm going back to my father and your father. Wow. Receive that word tonight. It's done not because of what you are doing or not doing. You can't do anything. It's what he did. It's what he did in that death and in that resurrection. And in your drawing near to him, that allows him to be your father, for God to be your father.